The radiance of the heart is the alchemical key in all experiments of the spirit. When you fully realize the intensity of this flame, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Your life will take on a miraculous aura of peace and divine ecstasy, which is almost indescribable. Your inner knowing and growth will be most tangible to you and to those around you. Count St. Germain. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who looks great in a mustard peasant shirt and orange tights. Brian, what's up? Not a whole lot, man. I don't appreciate you calling out my circus background like that, but <laughs> next time we'll talk about it first. <laughs> I thought that was your Count St. Germain outfit, so... Uh, I don't think he'd be caught in something like that. Eh, throw some diamonds on it. All right, some... maybe. And like a walking stick? Yeah. Something like Mr. French would have had on Family Affair. Maybe a Corvette and a hot French singer. (laughs) You're all set. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So do you want to tell them what they need to know? Sure. Tell them. All right. Everybody, you know the drill. Like, subscribe, comment favorite share whatever it is you can do on the particular platform you listen on we appreciate it and it really helps us grow more than honestly anything else that we can do uh share us with somebody that you like share us with somebody you think might be interested share us with somebody that you don't like who you think that will annoy uh all those things the engagement that's what helps us grow that's what lets us know that you're out there and listening that's what you know, lets us know to keep doing what we're doing. If you want to get in touch with us and let us know specifically what you like and what you don't like about what we're doing, you can do that by email at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on TikTok at cryptic underscore podcast and YouTube at cryptic podcast with no underscore. And as always, check out Parabox. The link should be in the show notes and you can check out what we're up to at crypticpodcaststore.com. And that's enough of the business. What are we talking about tonight, Ryan? Uh, as you alluded to, with great subtlety and, and drama, the Count of St. Germain. Sounds enigmatic. Let's drink every time you hear enigmatic. <laughs> uh, the enigmatic, that one doesn't count, don't take a drink, figure known as the Count de St. Germain. Let's not make it any more difficult than uh, it has to be. The enigmatic figure known as the Count of St. Germain captivated European high society during the mid-18th century. A man of diverse interests, he delved into science, alchemy, and the arts. His intellectual prowess earned him the admiration of Prince Charles of Hesse Castle, who regarded him as one of the greatest philosophers to have ever lived. To navigate the intricacies of the aristocratic circles... Ooh, tongue twister. St. Germain adopted various names and titles, a common practice among royalty and nobility at the time. So, bullshitting, something rich people have always done. Right, absolutely. We're just going to do our best on these. Uh, You know, these people are long since gone, and we're just going to make it fun. So we're just going to do our best on these names. We're not going to stress over it. Just, you know, they're not 
huge historical figures that everybody knows about, so we're just going to roll through it. And one of the things that's going to make these pronunciations more difficult is that you're jumping from French name to German name to Romanian, so you can't even get in one mode. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, I'll just hit this with a French accent and be right. Let's see what you got, big time. <laughs> among these among these aliases were the Marquis de Montferrat, Count Bellamar, Chevalier Schoening, Count Weldon, Count Solk- Sol- uh, Count Soltikoff, Manuel Doria, Graf Tsaragi, and Prince Rogozzi. Nice job. You don't often hear like a French name with a German last name. So like yeah, Chevalier Schoening. Oh, okay. That's a little odd. That I don't even know if that's German or if that's English. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. In using these aliases, he deflected inquiries about his origins, often weaving extravagant tales, like claiming to be 500 years old and possessing boundless knowledge. Honestly, this sounds like some shit I told my employees. These fantastical claims led Voltaire to mockingly nickname him the Wonder Man and remark, he is a man who does not die and who knows everything. Doesn't sound all that scathing to me. It sounds like all of us, right? (laughs) All of us guys. We know everything and we'll never die. Yeah. (laughs) While his true identity and background remain shrouded in mystery, towards the end of his life, St. Germain asserted that he was the son of Prince Francis II Rakotsi, of Transylvania. Usually you don't have another name after the the number. Yeah. I'm not Transylvanian. I don't know the I don't know the norms. It is worth noting that his name occasionally caused confusion with Claude Louis, Count de Saint Germain, a renowned French general. Hmm. Alright, let's get into his background. The Count Saint Germain asserted that he was the son of Francis to Ricosi, the Prince of Transylvania, as Ryan just told us about. But the veracity of this claim remains uncertain. Nevertheless, this lineage would explain his considerable wealth and excellent education. Let's take a, a step back into the 1700s. Nowadays, a a very smart person may be able to fake this or fake that, you know, to make themselves sound smarter. They can do some research on the internet on a specific topic and, and learn about it and sound smart about it. Like we try every week, but back then you didn't, you couldn't fake an education, right? You couldn't, you were either basically a peasant that probably couldn't even read or you were wealthy and very well educated. So this guy was not faking an, ed- an education. Right. I mean, even Shakespeare, there's the theory that he was actually several people, several well-educated right, right. people, because like, how could this one guy have produced all this stuff? You know, when did he travel to Italy? He described Italy in this way, but there's not really records of him having left the country, you know? So even people that, how, how do I, but like even people who we know today to be like highly influential and educated and intelligent figures back then, they're like, really this guy? <laughs> yeah. So this guy's not, not faking his education. You, you're not going to be able to just pretend like you can speak nine languages. <laughs> so okay. supporting this notion, the will of Francis Ricosi 
which would have been his alleged father, um, mentions his eldest son, Leopold George, who was believed to have passed away at the age of four. It's suggested that St. Germain's true identity was concealed as a protective measure amidst the persecutions faced by the Habsburg dynasty. So they changed his name to protect him, and that would make a lot of sense too, because you don't want to just kill the prince, you want to kill all the heirs too, otherwise you wouldn't be able to assume the leadership. When St. Germain arrived in Shelswig in 1779, he informed Prince Charles of Hesse Castle that he was 88 years old, implying a birth year of 1691. There's going to be a lot of birth and death years mentioned in here, so just be aware that we're not skipping around or going back and forth between his, his ages and birth years and death years and stuff it's because it's totally disputed. So you're going to hear all different kinds of dates as of right now. So just be aware we're not having a stroke. This is this is how the story goes. <laughs> this is another Randlesham Forest episode. <laughs> this would coincide with uh, Ricosi's age of 15 during that period. So 15 years old, already uh, hitting holes with Big D, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you're a prince, uh, according to accounts, St. Germain received his education in Italy under the patronage of Jean Gaston, the last of the Medicis, who was said to be his uncle by marriage. It's believed that he studied at the University of Siena. Throughout his adult life, St. Germain intentionally wove a complex web to conceal his true name and origins, assuming different pseudonyms as he traversed various European locales. The Marquis de Croquet claimed that St. Germain was Simon Wolfe, an Alsatian Jew born in Strasbourg at the end of the 17th or beginning of the 18th century. Others asserted that he was a Spanish Jesuit named Imar, while some suggested that his true title was Marquis de Betmar, hailing from Portugal. However, the most plausible theory suggests that he was the illegitimate son of an Italian princess born in 1710 in San Germano Savoy. His ostensible father was Rotondo, a tax collector from that region. So, murky beginnings. I feel triggered. <laughs> I don't like being called Rotundo. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so tell us about him as a historical figure. So this is kind of, I think this is going to be the accepted uh, university story on uh, St. Germain, like what the mainstream has accepted and believes. Tell us about that. Well, he appears to have begun to be known under the title of Count of St. Germain during the early 1740s. Alright, so starting off in England. According to David Hunter, the Count contributed some of the songs to Lincostanza <laughs> de Lusa, an opera performed at the Haymarket Theatre in London on all but one of the Saturdays from February 9th to the 20th of April in 1745. Where was he on that fateful missing Saturday? Later in a letter in December of that same year, Horace Walpole mentions Count St. Germain as being arrested in London on suspicion of espionage. This is during the Jacobite Jacobite Jacobite. This was during the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, but was released without charge. 
The other day, they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count St. Germain. We're getting into kind of a story here. He has been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes two wonderful things. The first, that he does not go by his right name, and the second, that he never had any dealings with any woman, nay, nor with any succadidinium. Do we know what that means? Um, I'm pretty sure it means fellatio. <laughs> Uh, okay. The dictionary definition is a substitute, especially for a medicine or a drug. Okay. So not, not with a woman or anything else or any substitute. Okay. He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully, composes, is mad and not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, somebody that married a great fortune in Mexico and ran away with her jewels to Constantinople, a priest, a fiddler, a vast nobleman. And when we say mad, we mean like crazy, insane, but I think they mean it in the most complimentary way possible. Why not? The Prince of Wales had an unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. However, nothing has been made out against him. He is released, and what convinces me that he is not a gentleman stays here and talks of his being taken up for a spy. So basically, he was kind of hanging out and was uh, maybe amused. I guess so, yeah. The Count gave two private musical performances in London in April and May of 1749. On one such occasion, Lady Jemima York. Jemima? As in the this pancake syrup thing? <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about that. Oh, right. They That's took her off the banned. bottle. That's banned history. Okay. Described how she was very much entertained by him or at him the whole time. I mean, the oddness of his manner, which it was impossible not to laugh at. Otherwise, you know, he is very sensible and well-bred in conversation. She continued, he is an odd creature. And the more I see him, the more curious I am to know something about him. He is everything with everybody. He talks ingeniously with Mr. Ray, philosophy with Lord Willoughby, and is gallant with Miss York, Miss Carpenter, and all the young ladies. But the character and philosopher is what he seems to pretend to, and to be a good deal conceited of. The others are put on to comply with the the manners of the world, is what it is in French. I'm not going to attempt a French accent to say it the right way. But that you are to suppose his real characteristic, and I can't but fancy he is a great pretender in all kinds of science, as well as that he really has acquired an uncommon share in some. She's saying he has good manners, but like odd characteristics, and he seems to be playing at being some kind of philosopher. Yeah, I like this this lady. Uh, she kind of calls him out. You know, it's kind of like a... She seems very advanced, you know, for her yeah. time. She's not like, oh, I was overwhelmed by this gentleman's knowledge. And she's like, he was kind of a cornball. Uh, he seemed like he was pretty smart, but he seemed like he was faking a lot of shit, too. And she just seems very modern with mm-hmm. her kind of, uh, I, I guess, description or, or you know, yeah. just... Just very, she, she sees through the bullshit. She's like, yeah. this, this guy's bullshitting with at least some of his stuff, and I can yeah. smell it. 
yeah she's like he's he's full of it but yeah he's kind of fun sometimes I'd, I'd like to know a little more right uh walpole reports that saint germain spoke italian and french with the greatest facility so with great ease though it was evident that neither was his language he understood polish and soon learned to understand english and talk it a little but spanish or portuguese seemed his natural language Walpole concludes that the Count was a man of quality who had been in or designed for the church. He was too great a musician not to have been famous if he had not been a gentleman. Walpole describes the Count as pale with extremely black hair and a beard. He dressed magnificently and had several jewels, and was clearly receiving large remittances but made no other figure. And I guess what they mean by that is he's got access to large amounts of money Right, with no, like, obvious source. Right, exactly. So, this description, extremely black hair, well, okay, and a beard. Uh, later on, we will talk about some other descriptions that are very, very Manilow-esque. <laughs> so, we'll talk about France after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Around 1748, St. Germain made his appearance at the French court. In the following year, he was recruited by Louis XV for diplomatic assignments. Meanwhile, a mime and English comedian named Milord Gower took on the persona of St. Germain in Parisian salons. And I guess by salon, they're meaning like a... Maybe a salon is just considered like a gathering or something like that. I just <laughs> oh, and I do want to say, yeah, I looked it up. A salon, I, I assumed, it, like you said, it was a gathering. Specifically in the 18th century, uh, France, salons were gatherings, usually hosted in private homes by prominent women. And they did each other's hair. And they sold Mary Kay products. And somebody had a pearl-painted Cadillac. Right. However, Gower's tales were even more extravagant than those of the genuine Count, including claims of advising Jesus, among other fantastical assertions. Naturally, the rumors surrounding Gower's performances became intertwined with the original St. Germain. Giacomo Casanova, in his memoirs, recounts several encounters with the, quote, renowned and knowledgeable imposter, referring to St. Germain. So, Casanova wrote, The most enjoyable dinner I had was with Madame de Robert Jersey, who came with the famous adventurer known by the name of Count St. Germain. This individual, instead of eating, talked from the beginning of the meal to the end, and I followed his example in one respect as I did not eat, but listened to him with the greatest attention. It may safely be said that as a conversationalist, he was unequaled. St. Germain gave himself out for a marvel and always aimed at exciting amazement, which he often succeeded in doing. He was a scholar, linguist, musician, and chemist, good-looking, and a perfect ladies' man. And that's a lot coming from Casanova. For a while, he gave them paints and cosmetics. He flattered them, 
not that he would make them young again, which he modestly confessed was beyond him, but that their beauty would be preserved by means of a wash, which he said cost him a lot of money, but which he gave away freely. He had contrived to gain the favor of Madame de Pompadour, who had spoken about him to the king, for whom he made a laboratory in which the monarch, a martyr to boredom, tried to find a little pleasure or distraction, at all events, by making dyes. And that may not sound like a lot of fun to you, Crypt Keepers, but back then dyes were a really big deal because they were hard to come by and there were certain colors that were extremely rare and, you know, which made them very expensive. And a lot of people in those times were working on trying to make different dyes, cheaper dyes for different kinds of clothes and stuff like that. Point being that making dyes was a big deal back then. Casanova continued, The king had given him a suite of rooms at Chambord and a hundred thousand francs for the construction of a laboratory, and according to St. Germain, the dyes discovered by the king would have a materially beneficial influence on the quality of French fabrics. This extraordinary man, intended by nature to be the king of impostors and quacks, would say in an uneasy, assured manner that he was three hundred years old, that he knew the secret of the universal medicine, that he possessed a mastery over nature, that he could melt diamonds, professing himself capable of forming, out of ten or twelve small diamonds, one large, one of the finest water, without any loss of weight. All of this, he said, was a mere trifle to him, notwithstanding his boastings, his barefaced lies, and his manifold eccentricities. I cannot say I thought him offensive. In spite of my knowledge of what he was, and in spite of my own feelings, I thought him an astonishing man, as he was always astonishing me. So, there you have it. That's Casanova, and he may be the world's foremost ladies' man of all time, <laughs> dropping these compliments on the enigmatic count. Tell us about the Dutch Republic. In March of 1760, during the height of the Seven Years' War, St. Germain embarked on a journey to The Hague. While in Amsterdam, he took up residence with bankers Adrian and Thomas Hope, feigning a visit to borrow money for Louis XV, offering diamonds as collateral. He assisted Bertrand Philip, Count of Gronsfeld, yeah, that sounds right, in establishing a porcelain factory in Wiesp, showcasing his expertise in furnace and color techniques. St. Germain, in collaboration with Duke Louis Ernest of Brunswick-Lundberg, endeavored to initiate peace negotiations between Britain and France. British diplomats, suspecting St. Germain's affiliation with the Duke de Belle Isle and potentially Madame de Pompadour, sought to undermine the pro-Austrian Duke de Choiseul, the French foreign minister. Okay, so he's getting involved in porcelain factories and political negotiations interesting however the british insisted on receiving saint germain's credentials directly from the french king before engaging in any discussions so they wanted to make sure he was real everybody everybody seems to be suspicious of this guy at least a little bit well it's funny because he has a lot on his plate both literally and figuratively mm. he's not eating and he's got his hands in everything Upon the intervention of Duc de Choiseul, that's how I'm going to keep saying that, Louis XV disavowed Saint-Germain and issued a warrant for his arrest. Count Bentinck de Rune, 
A Dutch diplomat perceived the arrest warrant as an internal French political matter in which Holland should not involve itself directly. However, refusing to extradite St. Germain outright was also deemed unwise diplomatically. So he was in, I don't know, he was in their territory and they refused to give him over to the French. Consequently, Darun facilitated St. Germain's departure to England by providing him with a passport issued by the British ambassador, General Joseph York. Remarkably, this passport was left blank, enabling St. Germain to travel under an assumed name whew, from Helvoetsluis to London in May of 1760, highlighting the official acceptance of such practices during that era. From St. Petersburg, St. Germain traveled to Berlin, Vienna, Milan, Ubergen, Zutphen in June of 1762. We're starting to get dates and years now. Amsterdam in August of 1762. Venice, uh, 1769, Livorno, 1770, Nuremberg, 1772, Montau, 1773, The Hague, 1774, and Bad Schwalbach, but no date for that one. Oh, that's going to be your new nickname. Bad Schwalbach? Yeah. I like that. That's not bad. I would, I would put that on a shirt. Yeah, we'll talk about his death. In 1779, or alleged death, I should dun, say. Dun, dun. In 1779, St. Germain arrived in Altona, Schleswig, where he formed a connection with Prince Charles of Hesse Castle, a fellow enthusiast of mysticism and a member of secret society. Demonstrating his collection of gems, St. Germain successfully convinced the prince that he had developed a new method for coloring cloth. Impressed by the Count's skills, Prince Charles, uh, a different Prince Charles, not the big-eared king were dealing with these days uh, provided him with an abandoned factory along with necessary materials and fabrics to pursue his project over the subsequent years the count and the prince met regularly collaborating on various endeavors including alchemical experiments and the creation of gemstones and jewelry in a letter the prince revealed that he was the sole individual in whom saint germain confided it's odd to me and maybe i'm just thinking along the lines of some of you know high society throughout history that no one just kidnapped him and was like all right make me diamonds or you die but in any case in a letter the prince revealed that he was the sole individual in whom saint germain confided the count claimed to be the son of transylvanian prince francis ricosi ii and stated he had been 88 years old upon his arrival in Schleswig. In February 1784, St. Germain passed away at his residence in the factory, while Prince Charles was in Castle. The death was recorded in the register of St. Nikolai Church, Eckernford. He was allegedly buried on March 2nd in a private grave at Nikolai Church, with the cost of the burial documented in the church's accounting books the following day. Subsequently, on April 3rd of the same year, the mayor and city council of Eckernford issued an official proclamation regarding the auction of St. Germain's remaining possessions if no living relative came forward within a specified time period to claim them. Prince Charles donated the factory to the crown, which was later transformed into a hospital. Research conducted by Jean Overton Fuller revealed that upon St. Germain's death, his estate consisted of paid bills, receipts, 82 Reichsthalers and 13 shillings, various clothing items, linen shirts, a mustard peasant shirt, 
orange tights, miscellaneous personal effects such as razors, buckles, toothbrushes, sunglasses, and combs. Notably, no diamonds, jewels, gold, cultural artifacts from travels, personal items like his violin, or correspondence notes were listed among his possessions. So it's interesting that they're like, and obviously I was joking about the mustard peasant shirt and orange tights, but it's interesting that they're like, oh, he had basically $13. He had some uh, razors, some sunglasses. What? Diamonds? Jewels? Gold? Cultural artifacts? We didn't find any of that. His violin? What? No, that sounds made up. Uh, so none of the expensive stuff that he was proclaimed to have throughout his entire life was found. So either somebody took it all or he really didn't have most of the stuff. And, and I'm assuming by, you know, all like we're talking about major political figures that are, you know, talking about his escapades. So I don't think that it's made up that he often wore diamonds and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like this is a, a grab by the church. Just, man, let's take his stuff, man. You know, one day that violin's going to be worth a million dollars. Yeah, so. that could be. That could be. I was kind of thinking the same thing. You know, one of those deals where, like, I have a neighbor who passed away a while ago. I might have mentioned her to you before, but she traveled all over the world. Mm -hmm. Like her and her husband weren't terribly rich, but they also were not able to have kids. So they didn't have that expense. And it's amazing what you can afford without kids. Yep. And she has tons of artifacts from all over. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a shame that she passed without like really explaining a lot of what it was. And I don't think most of it's documented. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, when her house is, it's being handled by like Edward Jones or something like that. And it would I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of the artifacts in there were just missing. And mm -hmm. what, what do you mean? These artifacts, these, you know, weird whatever, these weird like instruments and things and the, yeah, these paintings and whatever. Like, no, that, I didn't see any of that. Right. A Monet? I don't even know who that is. Yeah, oh no, was no. It? There was there were no uh you know, Breitling watches or anything in that box. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, how do you say it? Van Gogh? I don't even know who Van Gogh was. Van Gogh? Sounds like you need to lozenge. What? <laughs> All right. We'll discuss literature about the Count after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell them about some of these... Uh, biographies and books attributed to the count okay the best known biography is isabel cooper oakley's the count of saint germain from 1912 which gives a satisfactory biographical sketch it is a compilation of letters diaries and private records written about the count by members of the french aristocracy who knew him in the 18th century another interesting biographical sketch can be found in the history of magic by eliphas Le levi yeah Levi sounds like really modern next to a name like Eliphas. I know. Although, who knows? Maybe there are tons of people. Maybe you bump into five of them you know, every day if you were in the right part of the world. Or it could have been that it was like Levis Schliegenbotham, and they're like, well, let's take off the Schliegenbotham. 
Now I'm imagining somebody like yelling at their kid to come in for dinner, like, get shark at the bargain, get in here. <laughs> Alright. Anyway, originally published in 1913. Numerous French and German biographies also have been published. So there are books attributed to the Count. Among the limited written works attributed to the Count of Saint Germain, there are two notable pieces. La Tres Saint Trinisophie and the Uni nope, in the untitled Triangular Manuscript. La Trace Saint Trinisophie is an exquisitely illustrated manuscript from the 18th century. It is a symbolic text that can be interpreted as depicting either a spiritual initiation uh, journey or an alchemical process. I'm really trying to decipher what exactly that's supposed to mean. The manuscript has been published multiple times, notably by Manley P. Hall, great name, in Los Angeles in 1933. The attribution of this work to St. Germain is based on a handwritten note found inside the original manuscript, claiming it to be a copy of a text once owned by St. Germain. However, despite Hall's extensive introduction linking the manuscript to the Count's legend, there is no definitive evidence connecting it to him. The second attributed work is an untitled 18th century manuscript in the shape of a triangle which we creatively called the Triangular Manuscript. <laughs> Two known copies exist. Known as Hogart Manuscript 209 and 210, currently housed in the Manley Palmer Hall Collection of Alchemical Manuscripts at the Getty Research Library. In 2011, Nick Koss decoded and translated this manuscript, which was subsequently published as the Triangular Book of St. Germain by Ouroboros, Ouroboros? Yeah, short press in 2015. Unlike the first work, this manuscript explicitly mentions St. Germain as its creator. It describes a magical ritual through which one can supposedly achieve the remarkable feats associated with the legend of the Count of St. Germain, namely acquiring immense wealth and extending one's lifespan. And we'll get into that triangular book a little later. Let's talk about theosophy. The late 19th and early 20th centuries witnessed the proliferation of myths, legends, and speculations surrounding St. Germain which persists to this day. These beliefs encompass a range of ideas, including, so these are all things that are being attributed to the Count, and some of them are going to seem crazy, but that's why we're talking about it, Crypt Keepers. The first one, immortality. It's often asserted that Saint Germain is immortal, defying the natural course of aging and death. The Wandering Jew, some associate St. Germain with the mythical figure of the Wandering Jew, condemned to wander the earth until the second coming of Christ. The Alchemist with the Elixir of Life, St. Germain is frequently depicted as an alchemist possessing the secret formula for an elixir that grants eternal life. That he was a Rosicrucian, there are claims that St. Germain was a member of the Rosicrucian Order, a secretive and mystical fraternity and prophesying the French Revolution. It is believed by some that Saint Germain prophesied or predicted the occurrence of the French Revolution, and he's had encounters with notable figures. According to tales, Saint Germain had encounters with individuals such as the forger Giuseppe Balsamo, also known as Cagliostro, in London, and the composer Rameau in Venice. We talked a little bit about his uh, meetings with Casanova, and he, you know, crossed paths with Madame Pompadour, uh, also known as Jean Antoinette Poisson. 
Marquis de Pompadour, the influential mistress of King Louis XV of France, is said to have met the Count and was reportedly fascinated by his charm, intelligence, and alleged immortality. Voltaire, the renowned French philosopher and writer, mentioned the Count Saint Germain in a letter. He described him as a man who never died and suggested he possessed knowledge and secrets beyond ordinary understanding. Then, with King Louis XV of France, French. <laughs> you want French dressing for your salad? <laughs> All right. King Louis XV of France is said to have held an interest in the Count, reportedly engaging in conversations with him and seeking his insights on various subjects. And we talked about, you know, their love of dyes. Ascended Master. Certain groups revere Saint Germain as an ascended master, considering him a supernatural being with elevated spiritual wisdom. These various interpretations and narratives contribute to the, you guessed it, enigmatic and mysterious reputation surrounding Saint Germain, continuing to captivate and intrigue people across different spiritual and esoteric traditions. Did he come back? The Count of St. Germain's remarkable presence and sightings extended beyond the 18th century and continued well into the 19th and 20th centuries. In 1785, he was reportedly seen in Germany alongside Anton Mesmer, the renowned pioneer of hypnotism. Some theories propose that St. Germain may have shared foundational concepts of hypnotism and personal magnetism with Mesmer. So that's a big deal. This guy is the reason we have the name or the word mesmerized. You know, right. you're kind of taken under control almost, hypnotized. So I don't know. Did he pass that on to Mesmer or did Mesmer pass that on to him? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Official Freemasonry records indicate that St. Germain was chosen as the representative for a convention in 1785, highlighting his involvement and influence within secret societies. In the aftermath of the French Revolution and the storming of the Bastille in 1789, the Countess Dadamar, sounds good to me, claimed to yep. have engaged in a lengthy conversation with the Count of Saint Germain. Allegedly, during this encounter, he foretold France's immediate future, implying that he possessed knowledge of what was to come. These continued appearances and interactions further contribute to the enduring mystique surrounding Count St. Germain, as he transcends the confines of time and leaves a trail of enigmatic, take your drink, encounters, and associations throughout history. In 1821, she wrote, I have seen St. Germain again, each time to my amazement. I saw him when the Queen Antoinette was murdered on the day following the death of Duke Dingen in January 1815 and on the eve of the murder of Duke de Berry. In 1820, the Count of St. Germain was reportedly seen once again, appearing as a man who seemed to be about in his mid-40s, defying the aging process. However, after 1821, there are suggestions that he adopted a new identity. Albert Van Dam, in his memoirs, recounted an encounter with a man who bore a remarkable resemblance to Count of St. Germain. This individual, known as Major Fraser, seemed to be a new persona assumed by St. Germain, operating under a different name. The connection between Major Fraser and Count of St. Germain raises intriguing questions about the Count's ability to assume different identities and continue his enigmatic existence throughout the years. The true nature of Major Fraser and his relationship to the Count of St. Germain remains a subject of speculation and mystery, leaving room for further exploration and conjecture surrounding the elusive figure's identity and immortal presence. 
Van Dam wrote, He called himself Major Fraser, lived alone, and never alluded to his family. Moreover, he was lavish with money, though the source of his fortune remained a mystery to everyone. He possessed a marvelous knowledge of all the countries in Europe at all periods. His memory was absolutely incredible, and curiously enough, he often gave his hearers to understand that he had acquired his learning elsewhere than from books. Many is the time he has told me, with a strange smile, that he was certain he had known Nero, had spoken with Dante, and so on. But now Major Fraser has disappeared without a trace. Uh-oh. The true identity and nature of Count St. Germain remain shrouded in mystery, subject to various interpretations and speculations. Between 1880 and 1900, the Theosophical Society, led by influential mystic Helena Blavatsky, revived interest in St. Germain, claiming that he was still alive and actively involved in advancing the spiritual development of the West. So, what does Germain mean? Right. If you look back, Germain, I believe, comes from the Latin of Herman or Hermain, which means brother, right? Because we know that in Spanish, Hermano is brother. So Count Saint Germain basically, in my opinion, took that name because he he knew that he needed to help the world. Right. And so he's basically at this point, if we're to believe all of this, I I guess that's kind of the disclaimer we need. But he's kind of going around and doing things to try and advance science, uh, advance uh, theology, philosophy, stuff like that. All right. A purported photograph showing Blavatsky and St. Germain together added fuel to the belief in his continued existence. In 1897, the renowned French singer Elma Calve dedicated a portrait to Saint Germain, further perpetuating his enigmatic persona. Drink. Guy Ballard. Ballard, along with his wife Edna, founded the I Am Activity, a spiritual movement in the 1930s. They claimed to have encountered the ascended master Saint Germain and presented him as an important figure within their teachings. And of course, if you can weave something like St. Germain into your teachings, into your philosophy, it's going to draw people in. It's going to add intrigue, mystique, and it's going to kind of fluff up your sales pitch a little bit, I guess. So Elizabeth Clare Prophet, she was a prominent figure in the New Age movement, claimed to have received messages from the Ascended Master St. Germain and incorporated his teachings into her spiritual work. Over the years, numerous individuals have claimed to channel or communicate with the spirit or consciousness of Count St. Germain, offering insights, messages, and teachings associated with him. And this is where it gets awesome. In 1972, a man named Richard Chanfrey proclaimed himself to be the legendary Count St. Germain. He gained attention by appearing on French television, where he allegedly transformed lead into gold on a camp stove, providing a visual demonstration of alchemical prowess. So, there is, and this is all in French, so I'm not going to play a lot of it. I'll play a little bit uh, in just a minute, but... Uh, he appeared on this show and there were allegedly 
I guess, uh, chemists there, and he showed how he turned lead into gold. And he did it several times on TV, and the experts that were there were basically all like, yeah, he turned lead into gold. We have no idea how he did it, but it's real. So, was it was it fake? I don't know, but... You know, apparently, if everybody on this show's on the up and up, he did it on live TV. So that's pretty interesting. He also managed to hook up with the most popular French singer of all time. Uh, she basically, she was like the first diamond performer. You know, we have... Uh, you know, gold records, platinum records, and then you have Diamond, which is 10 million copy. But anyway, just sold an insane amount of albums. By far the most popular French singer in the country. If you can think of, like, somebody coming along and being like, hey, I'm uh, Count St. Germain. Uh, yeah, we're in Europe, but I've got this 72 Corvette Stingray. I've got this sweet cane that also, by the way, has a uh, shotgun round in it. I'm wearing this, you know, cool cape, and I'm just gonna start dating Taylor Swift. We're just gonna start going out. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump, jump in on some of her songs and sing with her. And so he literally does this with the Taylor Swift of 1970s France. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, his identity remains elusive. And obviously there's multiple theories and we're going to get into some of them too. And in the after party, we're going to have the most incredible possibility of St. Germain. But some speculate that he was a successful alchemist who discovered the secret of eternal life, while others entertain the possibility of him being a time traveler. Alternatively, he could have been an exceptionally intelligent individual whose reputation grew into a fantastical legend over time. Ultimately, the true nature and origins of Count St. Germain continue to captivate and intrigue. We'll hear from Richard Chamfrey after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. So right now I'm just going to play a little uh, of the music that Mr. Shan Frey sang. And so like I said, in this one, he, does not, he doesn't have the jet black hair and the beard. He's got kind of silvery grayish hair, no facial hair, and looks a little bit like Barry Manilow. Saint-Germain. Et notre grande amie Dalida, de l'amour, de l'amour pour la première fois à la télévision en France. Un peu de bois, de du vent. ensemble, en écoutant doucement. All right. So tell us a little bit more about Count of Saint-Germain. 
The Count of St. Germain's purported ageless appearance and mysterious abilities have indeed fueled many speculations and tales. The accounts of him looking remarkably young despite his advanced age remain a mystery, and various explanations have been put forth, including the use of potions or his alleged alchemical skills to maintain a youthful appearance. St. Germain's fascination with jewels and his possession of numerous gems are often mentioned in accounts of his life. The theory suggesting his lineage is the son of Prince Francis II Rakosi of Transylvania, and his association with the Habsburg dynasty adds an additional layer of intrigue to his story. While tales of St. Germain's proficiency in languages, alchemy, music, diplomacy, and espionage have been circulated, the extent of his actual abilities is difficult to ascertain. Some ascribed his wealth to his supposed ability to transmute substances into gold using alchemy. The notion of his involvement in secret orders and magical practices has also been proposed. The true nature and abilities of St. Germain remain elusive, and it is challenging to discern fact from fiction. While the enigmatic Count's story shares some parallels with the fictional character Dracula, it is essential to distinguish between the historical accounts and the literary creation of Bram Stoker. The Count of St. Germain existed as a figure in historical speculation and folklore long before the publication of Dracula. So, essentially, he's not a vampire. Or probably not. <laughs> well, that's that's what they're saying now. I love when people are, are like, we have no idea, but it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know what he's not. He's not a vampire. One of my favorite, one of the best things I've ever heard was a buddy of mine who used to come into my bar. And one of my bartenders met some guy online. I might have told you the story before. I don't think so. But he was trying to convince her and she was like, should I go? Should I do this? Should I go on this trip? He was, he's like, he was driving a truck cross country, like a semi. Don't go. And he was going from like St. Louis to Washington, D.C. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he was telling her all this stuff and she was telling me and, and my buddy Tim you know, all these things that he was saying, like, that he, you know, that he has whatever this stuff and this money and this is what they're going to do. And this is, you know, how he's going to treat her and whatever. And he's like, really, I own the whole trucking company. He's like, I'm just doing like an undercover boss oh, yeah. kind of thing right now to see how things are running. And Tim goes out of all the things that didn't happen, that happened the least. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. It's like, out of all the things St. Germain is not, a vampire's the thing he is the least. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> I'm sure you know the saying, too, that, you know, if we're if we're going to talk a little time traveler stuff, the, how does the saying go? It's like, any unknown technology advanced sufficiently enough beyond what the public is used to is indiscernible from magic mm -hmm. so maybe you know he was a time traveler from the future and in you know the year 3000 they know how to turn lead into gold and it's just a little you know chemical equation or something like that and then that's something he can come back and and do but I don't know. In any case, we told you we'd talk a little bit more about the Triangular Book of St. Germain because this thing is really cool. I can't, I guess I should have looked up what the uh, price would be on something like this, but I, I imagine that since there's really only two in existence and it's, you know, from such an enigmatic figure that it would be worth a lot of money. 
So let's get into this. The Triangular Book of St. Germain, also known as the Triangular Manuscript, is an anonymous French text from the 18th century. It's written in code and it's often attributed to the legendary Count St. Germain. The manuscript derives its name from its unique physical form, with its binding and vellum sheets arranged in the shape of an equilateral triangle. Do we remember what vellum is from uh, the Voynich manuscript? It's donkey skin. Donkey skin. Upon decryption, the text reveals instructions for a mystical undertaking enabling individuals to perform extraordinary feats of magic, such as unearthing hidden treasures and prolonging one's lifespan. You want to tell us about the structure and contents? The manuscript commences with a brief Latin inscription indicating that it is a gift bestowed by the Count of St. Germain, accompanied by an illustration depicting a winged dragon. Beyond this point, all text, including the inscriptions within the diagrams, is encoded. Additionally, a photograph is included, showcasing an actual silver talisman crafted by a Volund jewelry, which was associated with this book. The content of the book outlines a ritual aimed at accomplishing specific objectives, locating specific valuable objects, or prolonging one's lifespan. To achieve the former, the ritual must be performed during a complete solar eclipse. The latter goal can be pursued at any time, but it necessitates the use of a designated longevity amulet, referred to in a diagram within the manuscript. Despite being a part of the Manley Hall collection of alchemical manuscripts, this text diverges from the usual alchemical content. It appears to have been intended as a standalone work and was likely combined with other manuscripts after its acquisition by the Getty Research Institute. So the history. The triangular manuscript is represented by... But it's a good point, though, about the... You could just totally bullshit and write down a bunch of stuff and... If no one breaks it, then it's a mystery forever. The triangular manuscript is represented by two known copies designated as Hogart Manuscript 209 and 210, which currently reside in the collections of the Getty Research Institute, and each copy possesses its own distinct history. MS 209, uh, which is basically just meaning Manuscript 209, from 1775 was created for... Antoine Louis Moray, a French Freemason who immigrated to the United States in the 18th century. It was once part of the library of Jules C.J. Favre, assuming that you say it the same way you say Brett's name. Uh, from <laughs> exactly 18- what I was thinking. <laughs> who uh, lived from 1809 to 1880 and was a French politician. Pliny E. Chase also living from 1820 to 1886, an American mathematician with an interest in cryptography made a reference to the manuscript in a lecture to the American Philosophical Society in October of 1873, where he mentioned that the manuscript was, quote, purchased in Amsterdam about 70 years ago around 1803. However, it remains unclear whether Chase owned the manuscript, examined it, or simply heard of its existence. Stanislas de Wata, 1860-1898, that's a short life, a French bibliographer, poet, and Rosicrucian later had the manuscript in his possession. It subsequently passed through the hands of Madame, Madame Barbet in Paris, and then Frank Hollings, a London-based writer and antiquary in the 20th century. In 1934, Hollings sold it to Manley P. Hall. 
Less information is available regarding the second manuscript, MS-210, which is the older of the two, dating back to 1750. It was once part of the library of Lionel Hauser, a member of the Theosophical Society in Paris. In 1934, Manley P. Hall acquired it for 40 guineas at an auction of Hauser's library conducted in Sotheby. I don't know what a guinea's worth, but Ryan will talk more about the triangular manuscript after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. You get the exciting part. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. Shaken, shook even. So, so Guinea is... So there are two ways of figuring out how much that really is. All right. <clears throat> so apparently the face value of a Guinea is about one pound and one shilling or about one pound about and five dollar. pence if you come back and you say it's about a dollar we're gonna have a problem <laughs> no a pound a, one one point zero five pound okay uh which you can convert so i use the bank of england's inflation calculator which comes out to about 2470 pounds today wow. or if you convert that to us dollars about three thousand one hundred thirty nine dollars and nine cents so again still not that much not for at like all two one-of-a-kind works however uh the other thing that i looked up with guineas was that they were at one point made from gold mm. and that would make sense yes the one standard Guinea introduced in yeah, 1770 or whatever. Based on the standards from 1717, there was a gold coin weighing up with about seven and a half ounces of gold. Or not ounces, grams. That'd be a heavy fucking coin. Yeah. Like a half pound coin. <laughs> anyway, the amount of gold in today's dollars would be 19,132 and 56 cents. Still. I mean, if it's a... But we're going like currency value, so probably like the 3100 bucks is more, right? That's crazy, though, man. That's, I mean... I wonder what it would be worth today if it went up for auction. Right. Tell them about the format. The triangular manuscript stands out due to its unique physical shape, which takes the form of an equilateral triangle. With each side measuring approximately 23.7 centimeters, it is exquisitely bound in leather and adorned with gilded elements on the front cover. In the tradition of European grimoires, there is a recurring practice of summoning spirits within a triangle inscribed on the ground. This triangular shape, often reinforced by inscribing divine names, uh, oh, this triangular shape, often reinforced by inscribing divine names around it, was believed to compel spirits to respond truthfully and fulfill their assigned tasks promptly. By carving the manuscript in the shape of a triangle, the author may have sought to accentuate its profound spiritual essence and significance. Yep, sure did. So, if you... How much would you pay for something like this? 
I'm strange. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know everybody knows that. That's why we love you. I'm, I never feel like I have to own stuff for the mm-hmm. most part. And I think about it for me, it's like, well, I don't, I don't need to own that. Like, it's very cool that that exists, but it's like, what am I going to do with it? It's going to go up on a shelf or on the wall and then what? The bush has been fully beaten around. What are you paying? <laughs> so unless I'm going to, so unless I'm going to use this, if I believe that like you can do stuff with this, mm-hmm. that's different. Uh, I th- okay. So let let me think about it in terms of like I'm some kind of collector for one or both, just one, just one. I think up to thirty thousand, forty thousand. Yeah, I think it'd be worth it. And I mean, that's not a huge amount of money for somebody worth that much, but it's still a lot. It's going to keep it out of the peasant's hands. Yeah. And what I don't understand is why there's not a ton of effort put into translating. Because if it's worth, you know, say, we'll just say 30,000 because it's an easy number. But then you translate it. And then there's codes and stuff, and and you know maybe it's maybe it tells you how to, you know, change lead into gold, something like See, that. If they put it up for auction, what would happen is Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures would buy it. Yeah, and they would create another shitty Travel Channel show about like decoding it. Agreed. It'd be just like those other shows, like Skinwalker Ranch, and. Uh, I don't know any of the other ones where they're like digging a hole or something and like looking for a thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I don't. I don't know what these shows are, but there's a there's several of them where they're like exploring the same place. Yeah, like Oak Island. Yeah, Oak Island. That's one of the ones that I was thinking of. Yeah, it's like they would do that. They'd be like constantly trying to, and it could be interesting if they're like researching Saint Germain. Yeah, but I could definitely see it being just like another boring one of these things where like nothing really happens and they kind of have to manufacture the drama it turns out it's like a diary about every chick he hooked up with (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just 10 episodes of this guy like sitting at a desk like hmm and then at the end of the 10th episode he's like oh yeah because he finally gets the code and it's like okay yeah that's your show so what are your final thoughts on so far? Now we have a really awesome, like I think the after party is going to be more exciting than the actual show this week. But what's your thoughts on St. Germain? Just is he a time traveler? Is he immortal? Is he, you know, what what do you think your gut instinct tells you on this I really like the idea that he's, you know, some kind of ascended master and knows some way of extending his own life, knows how Mm. to kind of manipulate the world in whatever way he needs to. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I've read other encounters than what we've included here. Right. You know, ones where he meets, uh, there's one where he meets this, like, you know, she's nobility, but she's older. She's, you know just an old woman mm-hmm. and he talks about like he he meets her at this party and dances with her and he's like oh I'm pretty sure we met you know at this thing like 40 50 years ago and she's like what are you talking about you're you know you're too 40. young for that yeah <laughs> yeah and he's like oh no ma'am I'm very old 
mm-hmm. like the I remember the quote being that sh- that he like said it with a very like serious expression, like I'm very old. Mm-hmm. Like we definitely met this night. Like describe the evening that they had. Like described like the night and like what they ate and what they talked about. But did he eat? Because that's one of the things that has always kind of remained constant in these stories about him is that no one ever saw him eat or drink he's a sun eater one of these people that just uh, feeds off the sun and doesn't need food and all that so could be or you know there's a theory that he found the fountain of youth and not, not from an alchemical standpoint but knew where the actual fountain of youth was and so every you know 10 years or so he'd just kind of take a break go take a dip in the fountain of youth stay away for a little while and come back as somebody else yeah i've i do remember reading that you know these different encounters you know it's like 1740 he appeared to be 40 in Mm -hmm. 1760 he looked like he was 35 Mm -hmm. you know he then like in the 1800s, he was even younger. Right. Like he was, he, he, yeah, almost appeared to be, you know, having like the Benjamin Button thing going on. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. There is just so much out there about him. There's stories that he spoke like 13 languages fluently. And I know we didn't get into that, but there's a lot of, you know, research that I didn't put in here just because we don't have four hours for a show but that he yeah he spoke fluently like 13 languages now how long would that take you know what I mean like you you can't speak a, a language fluently without visiting a place where that language is spoken fluently you really kind of have to go and interact with people that that's their first language for you to be fluent mm-hmm. you know the whole thing about that stayed consistent about transforming alchemically, you know, lead to gold and melting diamonds and stuff like that. And, you know, they, he said that you could give him like 10 small diamonds and he would melt them down and make them into one big diamond with perfect cut, perfect clarity, stuff like that. And, and this is, I mean, it, it either has to be that he is a, an ageless wonder, I guess, to say the least, or found the secret of eternal life, fountain of youth, or whatever. Or it's a bunch of different people that are also very enigmatic and talented that are claiming this uh, claiming this name, I guess. But he's super interesting. Uh, the if you just Google like Richard Shanfrey, that's C H A N F R A Y. There's a lot of really hilarious and fun YouTube videos out there on him. The music that the original Count Saint Germain composed was kind of baroque, and I really do not like baroque style music at all. But he does have some well-known uh, violin I guess they they'd be concertos yeah that sounds right and then you jump ahead to Richard Chanfrey and it's like disco Barry Manilow I mean it's <laughs> almost unlistenable but is still funny 
so so check it out guys um i don't know you have any other final thoughts on this one not really i this is one i buy Mm -hmm. or at least it's one i really want to yeah i love the idea of this you know figure just going through time Mm -hmm. kind of popping in and out seeing what's going on you know seeing how humanity is kind of guiding things a little bit well, you know, another thing that I forgot to bring up is that he kind of played on everybody's team, too. One of the theories is that he found out, and I don't know if it was through the Illuminati or, you know, one of these secret societies, that the French Revolution was about to, you know, kick off. And he was on the side of the French Revolution. Like, yes, this is kind of what we need. But. He also warned Marie Antoinette, I know this is coming. You need to take this seriously and you need to, you know, get out, get away, whatever you have to do. And obviously she didn't listen. And one guillotine later, we all know what happened. So anyway, that's all we've got for you tonight. Tell them what they need to know. Like and subscribe, whatever it is you can do on your particular platform. Share us with somebody you like. Share us with somebody you don't like. Let people know about us because it's the best way for us to spread. Let us know what you want to hear next. You can email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on TikTok and YouTube. That is cryptic underscore podcast. Or for YouTube, there's no underscore. And then you can check out what we're working on at crypticpodcaststore.com. And as always, check out Parabox our buddies over there with their excellent designs using the link in the show notes and you can find out about jacques saint germain a new orleans vampire who claimed to be the descendant of count saint germain in the after hours episode this thursday good evening crypt keepers